Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back. This is C4C Apologetics. I'm your host, Danny. And as you can tell, seems like we're doing an interview today. Now, it's been quite a while since we've done an interview here. It's been a while since I've actually been on uh, YouTube. So I'm thankful for everybody that's followed still. We hit the thousand subscriber mark. And so that's a huge praise. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. But uh, what should we call it? Today, what we're doing is this is an interview I've been wanting to do for a while. And I wanted to talk about Catholicism. And so today, what we have here is we have a good friend of mine, Brian. He's in our church and uh, he's a military officer in the Air Force. And basically, Brian grew up in the Catholic Church. Well, I guess he didn't really grow up in the church, did you? 11 years old. 11 years old. Would you count that as growing up? I I would, but then, you know me, I'm a literalist, and the fact of growing up in the church makes me think like you had a nursery over there while mass was going on, and then you grew up, and I, I mean, the Catholic church, from what I understand, is really nice, really pretty, you know, a lot of historical features within the buildings themselves. Oh, yeah. At least, uh, what, St. Peter's Basilica? I've That's never been cool. there, but... I know Brock's been there, and it's just beautiful. So growing up in the church, you know, that, that would be pretty neat, I guess. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but I brought Brian on to go ahead with his upbringing in the Catholic Church, figuratively speaking, uh, to talk a little bit about uh, some questions that you have, that I have, that most people have as far as Catholicism. But before we get into those questions, Brian, could you give a little bit about yourself, background, upbringing, testimony, anything you'd like to share with the audience real quick? Certainly. I um, grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago, and uh, my wife and I um, have traveled a lot um, around the last 15 or so years. Uh, like Dan mentioned, I'm in the military, and I uh, have, um, uh, once we converted from Catholicism, we've been to a lot of different denominations, a lot of different churches. Um, for a while, we were Pentecostal, I think, um, and uh, a couple other denominations as well. But um, so technically, I've been Baptist longer in my life than I've okay. been Catholic. Okay. Like I mentioned earlier, I um, we converted from Catholicism to Protestantism, if you will, um, when I was 11 years old. Although Pastor yeah. Ken would tell me that Baptists are not Protestants, which <laughs> I, I I did not know that, which I thought was was kind of interesting. There's definitely a history as far as Baptists are concerned, and not being necessarily a part of the Protestant Reformation and things like that. But excellent, yeah. Well, thank you for your military service. Absolutely, and thank you for your military service. Uh, as you can tell, I'm I'm glad to be out. You're a little out of regs, but that's I, okay. I need a little trim, yep. but uh, that's coming soon. Forthcoming. Okay. <laughs> so, so Brian's a wealth of knowledge. I love Brian because you're like me a lot, or I'm like you, because you are- You take that me. back. Well, you're older than me, right? I'm going to say you're older than okay, me. We'll okay, we'll go with that. And so I have to be like you in the fact of, I'm like you that I, I like to question things. I'm not just satisfied with a yes or a no or some lackadaisical answer. I want to know the whys behind things. And that's right. really, that's what this guy's like. That's what really made me gravitate towards you a lot is the fact of I see a lot of me and you because you're older. You know, if I was older, it'd be a lot more of you and me, but you know what I mean. So you're my future. No, you're my future. Okay. You're older. See, I had to think about that. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but. So I do want to pick your brain. I know a lot of these questions are some general questions that mm -hmm. people have about Catholicism. There might be one or two that maybe you haven't thought of, you know, yourself that we want to provide clarity. Now, the intention of this isn't necessarily to go ahead and paint Catholicism in like this really bad negative light. I don't want to talk about the child abuse and the sexual scandals with the priests. I, I don't want to get into all of that. What I do want to do is just either clear up some misconceptions of the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. give them a fair shake. 
but also look at some of their teachings to find out if they're actually biblical or not within the Protestant Bible as opposed to the Catholic Bible with the Apocrypha right. and stuff like that. And so I do have my questions written down here, and I just want to start right off. Uh, can you give a little bit about yourself, which you already really did, but your involvement with the Catholic Church? You said you grew up in the Catholic Church till around age 11. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what you remember as far as that's concerned? And then a little bit about uh, what led you out of the Catholic Church? Okay, certainly. So I was baptized in the Catholic Church. I was confirmed, uh, which is something that happens around the age of 10 or 11, sometimes um it's it's similar to the what the Jews would consider a bar mitzvah, okay, kind of right. becoming a man, but mm -hmm. not necessarily becoming a man, but being able to comprehend church doctrine a little bit more. Okay, and it's an official ceremony with you and several of your peers, um, uh, you know, with your family there in the church, mm -hmm. um, where um, you might confess a couple things to the priest, um, you know, take uh, use dip your hand in holy water, use a sign, take the. I believe you you take your first communion there as well. Oh, okay. so that's that's a big part of it because um, part of communion is, well, I don't want to say more sacred when you're older, but um, they do well more sacred than other denominations. But what we were taught in Catholic school because I was taught by nuns okay. in first through fifth grade. And uh, some of the things they teach about um, the Eucharist is, you know, if you uh, put it in your mouth and you chew on it, that's a sin. Because hmm. I know I know this isn't any one of your questions, but one of the misconceptions about transubstantiation is not that that the bread literally becomes the body, body. and the and the and the bones of Christ, right. but the concept is it becomes Christ's essence. Okay. It's kind of like a platonic thing, like like Plato. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, one thing can become the essence of another living thing. Okay. Um, and I know there was a, a church father several hundred years ago who said that it was some akin to crunching on the bones of Christ. I don't know if oh, you've heard that. that I, phrase. I actually have. I don't remember where it's from. I don't remember where it's from either. Um, but that he, he was saying he, it was as if you were not literally. That is what you were doing. So they believe that it's some. It's sort of like an endowing. Uh, endowment aspect yes, of it's, receiving. It's not, it's not just a piece of remembrance, mm -hmm. um, but it is, I think we'll, we'll get into it a little bit later, but um, one one of the sacraments mm -hmm. um, that uh, kind of adds to your grace that okay. you get initially from Christ, yeah. but then add on to it after after that. Okay. I'm glad you brought that up. That one wasn't, transubstantiation wasn't in the questions, but there's a lot of misconception about that, and I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. Uh, what, I, you, I do want to say one thing before you go to the next yeah. question, because um, I've seen it from from both sides. Never since I've converted from Catholicism to Protestantism, one thing I have noticed mm -hmm. is a lot of Protestant denominations seem to mock what what Catholics believe in the okay. same way they mock what Mormons believe and things of that nature. And what I've found is a, a Protestant talking to a Catholic might say, "You believe this," and the Catholic would say, "No, we don't oh, believe that. This is right. how how it is." And um, when I was kind of thinking about, um, you know, some, some of the questions uh, that you're, you were asking about Catholicism, yeah. I was going back to things I've heard in my family, things I've heard in my school, in the Catholic school from the nuns, right. things of that nature. And I did a, a little bit of, you know, um, researching from, from, my, from my experience and kind of filling in the gaps because yeah. 11 years old was a long time ago. <laughs> um, and, uh, it, and yeah, I, I have found that to be the case that Protestants have kind of a misconception of what Catholics believe. Right. But at the same time, Catholics have a weird balance of where they get these doctrines from. Some right. of it is from scripture, 
us, but another yeah. part of that is is from an outside source. I definitely understand. I appreciate that. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about what pulled you outside of Catholicism and maybe, I guess, into Protestantism? Or did you go from Catholicism to agnostic, then to Protestant? What'd that look like? It was a weird circumstance. We, um, My mother, actually, before we were born, was, was considering um, becoming a nun because she loved God that much. And that's, that's another thing about Catholics is they, they love God a lot, even more, I would say even more than most Protestants. Mm -hmm. um, and because they have a certain level of devotion that I think right. Protestants and Baptists can't really comprehend. Right. Um, but there was, a, we, we never, or my parents at least never read the Bible because that, that, that was not something that was done at least in the seventies, eighties. And I think in, in the sixties as well, uh -huh. obviously before then, but um, when I, my grandfather died in 1996, it just so happened that we, this is my father's father, we drove past a, pro, a Protestant school and my mother was looking at getting me into another school because okay. um, I, I was going to a Catholic school at the time. And I, for some reason, she was looking for another another school and we passed one up and, and looked at what that school offered and right. they it had bible verses on the walls and stuff like that and, and she, you know she kind of really liked that yeah uh simultaneously to that there was a pentecostal church that was being built within walking distance of our of our house yeah and we just kind of checked that church out and um you know started to learn a little bit more about oh we can we can actually read the bible ourselves oh, oh you know right. yeah. salvation is actually just by accepting christ as your savior we don't ha have to do things right in, in addition to that and it was just kind of a, a mind-blowing thing to my mother and my father. And they got baptized in the Pentecostal church. And um, we're not Pentecostal anymore, but we were kind of trying to find our ways, our way to figure out what, um, you know, what this faith thing was yeah. that, you know, they, they'd known their entire lives. And all of a sudden that they can actually read it for themselves, right. you know, kind of open some doors. For How them. old were you at that time? I was 11. 11? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So Pentecostalism uh, sort of brought you out, opened your eyes as far as being able to read and, and right. see things for yourself, and and then found your way to uh, baptism or Baptist. Baptist, I guess. yeah. Well, you did find your way to baptism, yeah, of course. <laughs> so, but well, that's awesome. Well, I do want to jump into some uh, some questions specifically about Catholicism, and the first thing is uh, something that many I, I love watching soccer, and I could tell those that play soccer who's catholic before because when they get subbed onto the field before they cross the sideline and they go on they touch the ground and they go like that could you mm -hmm. explain what this symbol is what it means origins what's going on there so it's symbolic of an acknowledgement of doctrine everything about the catholic church is doctrine but okay the whole christian church is all about doctrine as well right. which is actually unique amongst the abrahamic religions because the jews have the law and the and islam has the five pillars right there's no other religion that says this is doctrine this is what we will believe this is what we're going to do all together okay yeah and the pope is the keeper of doctrine i know we're going to get into um mm -hmm. some vicar stuff later but um because there is a lot of emphasis on we are going to recite what we believe just to make sure that we are saying the right things and believing the right things. Okay. The sign of the cross is a symbol of uh, several things. One, acknowledging that um, we believe Christ died and Christ rose again. Mm -hmm. 
and there are certain different ways you do it. Two fingers. One is Christ is all man and all, all God, mm -hmm. which is a doctrine that, you know, the Catholic church put together and I, I forget which, which council, uh, the three fingers, the Trinity, yeah. you know, or an open hand, um, which is an openness to huh. God and, and his presence and, yeah. and him being your father. So I did not know that. Right. Um, uh, what I've heard is that it was popularized by Pope Leo the fourth okay. back in the eight hundreds. Um, but whatever, I, uh, couldn't find any resource on, on that specifically. Um, all I found out about him was he, he helped build walls and towers around Rome and the Vatican, uh, because I think the Huns, I think were trying to, um, okay. attack yeah. the, uh, Roman empire at the time, Yeah. but it, it was some external threat because yeah. Rome always was trying to fight off external threats and, um, and the Roman church or the, the catholic church was kind of slowly kind of getting hand in hand with with the emperorship and and it's its mm. own its own I didn't, situation i don't know the aspect of the different fingers and stuff like that to me i've always looked at it like if this is a sign of the cross it really looks like it's a cross upside down because when you go like this your cross beams on the lower end of the vertical right. beam and so i don't know i mean i know some people out there may have had that same it's a lot of times what people it, it also used to be so before that leo thing allegedly yeah. um people used to mark each other with a cross here right like you'll see that on ash wednesday right. mm -hmm. you know sometimes you'll see people instead of doing this they'll do this mm -hmm. on their lips and on their heart you know christ on your lips and christ on your heart kind of uh -huh. thing and that was what that was the practice before that kind of got popularized oh okay um yeah so but it just kind of evolved into a acknowledging god is your god right. and acknowledging that you believe the right things about um okay you know doctrine and the trinity and who god is yeah. and uh, how he manifests himself i know a lot of times people will say an upside down cross is satanic right right now all, all the satan well Satan's, it's not an upside down cross but right understand yeah. but all, all the satanist symbols i've seen you know the pentagram and then the baphomet stuff like that i don't recall seeing many upside down what i do remember is tradition shows that a couple of apostles were crucified on an upside down cross yes you know uh peter being one i think andrew was actually an x but i wouldn't see the apostles trying to do anything satanic you know with an upside down cross i technically it was the romans but was it yeah but he uh, didn't crucify himself well no that's true <laughs> yeah. but he did offer according to tradition he oh yeah like, no, i see your point he's like yeah, i don't right. see worthy enough to be crucified the same manner do me upside down type deal and then yeah rome ended up crucifying him but uh well the, so, i i don't believe and correct me if i'm wrong uh -huh. i don't believe the early church concerned itself with symbology and symbolism as much i mean i understand everybody had the mind of you know the cross in their heads mm -hmm. um but yeah. uh symbols are not i don't want to say a modern thing mm -hmm. but um it wasn't completely um you know as universal back then as, as it is now yeah. so um the concerns that we have with an upside down cross obviously didn't exist at that time that was yeah, one yeah. probably one of the things that was corrupted later on when because whenever you have a movement you're always gonna have a counter movement when oh, you have yeah. a doctrine you're always gonna have heresy right that's why you know in the history of the catholic church and even in you know a, a lot of protestant history as well um you know you have doctrine or new doctrines and you have heresies yeah and then this heresy has to be squashed Right. Um, either violently or through um um what's it what's the word uh like yeah just yeah and debates like and, and things like that yeah that's good in, input good insight
Uh, you did allude to it moments ago. Uh, second question really is, I've heard the term before. I think I understand basically what it is, but obviously not in the detail you do. Uh, Pope being the vicar of Christ. Right. Could you explain what that means, the vicar of Christ, and what authority does that give the Pope? When I was a child, my understanding of the Pope was, yes, he was either God or godly or like God. Um, right. But, you know, children kind of see the world in, in kind of a different way and they right. don't they don't understand things that um you know the way an adult understands things but from what i um researched what it what is defined from catholic sources is it's no. it, it sounds it sounds con contradictory because they say it's not replacing god but it is uh -huh. in place of god it's not replacing christ but it's in place of christ and the, right. here's the the um explanation like the example that's given yeah so joseph in genesis he did not replace pharaoh after he interpreted his okay. his dreams and all that stuff um but he was given pharaoh's authority all right so whenever somebody was talking to joseph it was almost as if they were talking to pharaoh okay now the um now joseph answered ultimately to pharaoh and um you know of course was given his authority but at the same time, he was acting in his place, like he yeah. was given the things that Pharaoh would normally normally be entrusted with. Mm -hmm. And Catholics would acknowledge, and any any Catholic, any priest that you would talk to will will acknowledge, yeah, the Pope is a person. It's he's just a carnal individual, right. um, and does is is not meant to be venerated like Christ or to be worshipped like Christ. But like I mentioned before, he is the keeper of doctrine. And one interesting from because we've talked I'm, I'm a historically minded person yes, like history yes. stuff like that so um when the catholic church was growing and evolving uh it kind of took some notes from the roman empire and because rome likes its chain of command rome right. rome really likes regiments and and um what's what's the word uh not red tape bureaucracy bureaucracy, bureaucracy yeah. stuff like that so so the church formed a chain of command. You got the Pope, you got Cardinals, you got bishops, right. you got a Bishop of Egypt, you got a Bishop of Alexandria, Bishop of Rome, okay. you know, yeah. here, and, and whenever they would evangelize, they would see themselves as kind of what the apostles were doing um, to all the different churches around the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. um, you know, hey, so you saw Christ yourself. You saw the miracles that were done from the apostles, from Pentecost, from here, okay. you know, Laodicea and, and, and uh, Smyrna and all, and all those. Right. You are messing up. You are not believing the right things. Mm -hmm. The Catholic Church sees themselves as kind of doing the same thing um, that the, the early apostles were doing when the church was growing. Okay. So that's what the Pope kind of acts as, the central figure of we need to make sure that everybody is believing the same things, saying the same things, and you know, reading the correct sources. Um, yeah. That's and I, th I think we talked about the Council of Nicaea uh, before, where I I'd always thought that the Council of Nicaea uh, was the council where the Catholic Church determined what books of the Bible oh, were going to be in the Bible. Right. And a lot of atheists and a lot of skeptics, if you that. will, think that, yeah. and they say, well, it was only put together because the Catholic Church decided yeah. this is what. But the Council of Nicaea only determined um, what Christ was. Was he just a man? Was he second in command to God? And that's where we get the idea of the Holy Trinity. Part of the reason why we do the sign of the cross, because right. after the Council of Nicaea, you had the Nicaeans 
and I mentioned the heresies. You got a doctrine. There's always going to be a heresy. Right. And you had uh, Arius, the bishop of Egypt, who yep. believed not in the Trinity. Um, mm -hmm. And so that council was meant to, I guess, excommunicate Arius and the Arians, which is where that word comes from, and um, establish the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's how doctrines are built on one another. Mm -hmm. And the Pope is the keeper of that doctrine as the vicar of, of Christ. Okay, so more like a uh, an authority figure or a representation yes of christ on earth if you will yeah and uh from what i understand they they look at uh, peter receiving the keys of the kingdom from jesus when jesus says you know upon this rock i will build my church and i give you the keys to the kingdom right. and what you you know bound bind bound on earth loose loose type deal but it's interesting if you were to study that from a jewish perspective understanding that the keys that peter received weren't necessarily for papal secession but it was actually, if you look at Acts 2, Acts 8, and Acts 10, the only person before the Gentiles, Jews, and the Samaritans received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Peter had to preach there. Peter preached at Pentecost. Peter didn't go to Samaria until after Philip evangelized the area. Then they received the Holy Spirit. And then Cornelius and Gentiles envisioned the sheet, the vision uh, to go out there, and then the Gentiles. And so I think... Uh, a few different Messianic Jewish uh, theologians point that out, and it's just another aspect of really looking at the Jewishness of Scripture to understand uh, that papal secession isn't biblical according to Matthew chapter, I think it's 16, and that that has really a Jewish insight and flair to it, that passage. The Catholic logic would be, in, in the verse that you referenced, yeah. Christ also bestowed certain powers if you will on the other disciples on the other apostles right um but for he only gave peter the keys right and they focus on that it's yeah. like he did everything the same thing for all of his followers but he gave peter the keys yeah and that's kind of their way of differentiating okay it. so peter is somehow elevated above the others because of this one extra aspect yeah so same verse but different interpretation and logic right to, to with, it. with that huh well I know one thing that's uh, regularly been talked about and discussed is the aspect of purgatory. So could you really, I mean, I think everybody has a general idea of what purgatory is, but could you elaborate on what is purgatory and where does the Catholic Church get this idea? Because, I mean, I've read the Bible and I don't really get an idea of somebody right. burning for a while temporarily before their entrance into heaven. So where does this come from? So, um, I'd actually taken a class online a, a few years ago uh -huh. just because I was kind of curious about doctrine and stuff. So, so I, you they, took a class because you were curious. Because I was curious. I love that. I do that sometimes. See about this guy? He's just, he takes college classes just because he's curious about something. I didn't get any credit. <laughs> There's like a $30, you know, DVD set, you know, yeah. I mean. If, awesome. if it cost if it cost me nine hundred bucks a credit, no, I wouldn't. I'm not that curious. <laughs> but um, so Saint Augustine. Okay. Okay. I know you probably wouldn't refer to him as saint, but no, that's yeah. yes, uh -huh. Saint Augustine. Yep. Um, he was very close to his mother, mm -hmm. and um, in his autobiography, mm -hmm. um, sometime shortly after her death, he wrote. He was he was speaking to his his followers. Okay. The, the, catholic church yeah and said please pray for my mother and this was the first time in writing that any church leader had said something 
like that. Yeah. So, and I don't know if this debate happened after Augustine died or if it was while he was close to death, but the debate raged on, what, what does it mean, pray for your mother? She's she's dead. Yeah, why, right. why would we pray for her? But Augustine was so venerated. And, and so let me, that they, that they started to come up with the idea of purgatory because, okay. you know, um, a statement by a church father, okay, kind of you kind of pull the pull the thread back. What what does this mean? What is he saying? Mm -hmm. They came to the doctrine of purgatory. Okay, and it's in it's not in any of the apocryphal books. I don't believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I'm sure it's in the Catechism, but um, there there's there's a division, of course, in the Roman Empire, the Eastern Church and the Western Church. Okay. Western yeah. Church is headed by the Pope. Eastern Church is headed by the Patriarch of the patriarch of Greece or something like that. Okay. Um, which is a, a different um, hierarchy, but the Western church prided itself on, we have all these superstars. We got Augustine, we got Thomas Aquinas. Mm -hmm. We have, you know, there's like five others. And the way that they see these men is, uh, I, I want to make sure I'm saying this correctly. Um, authoritative in, you know, speaking, on spiritual things so you know protestants and baptists say sola scriptura in you okay. know scripture alone only yeah. scripture uh -huh. um but of course if if you have a rock star like augustine who's saying all these things about you know the bible and you know um the nature of god man's relationship to god what does it mean to be you know carnal what is what is the spiritual realm like right. just really deep thinker that revolutionized how the catholic church uh, thinks about the world yeah. and how it thinks about establishing doctrine. They kind of see him as almost equal to scripture. Not quite. They would yeah. never admit that it would be that Aquinas or, or, or Augustine oh, would be yeah. equal to scripture, but they take everything that those men say and they say, okay, so they must have some extra spiritual connection that we don't have because they are so brilliant. They're so philosophical. They're so spiritual. Yeah. They're saints after all. Okay. So they're authoritative. And um, if they say something in autobiography, pray for my mother. Mm -hmm. Well, he must be getting at some special truth that we didn't right. know before. So that's where that came from. Huh. Okay. Now, is there anything in the Bible that you're aware of? I mean, like you said, I've read the Bible, you know, as far as purgatory, praying for the dead. I never came across anything for that. No, but... I mean, the only thing I can think off the top of my head is Abraham's bosom, Yeah. which I don't understand that myself. Maybe mm -hmm. you can tell me about that but i, I but yeah. yeah that's the closest thing i can think of okay uh so purgatory so is purgatory in the catholic eyes really this temporary holding spot to burn off some sins before they get into heaven uh yes and no um when we when a catholic thinks of original sin uh -huh. or sin in general uh they think of in two different terms one is guilt one is punishment okay and in punishment you have temporal punishment and eternal punishment mm -hmm. um baptism when you're a baby gets rid of that eternal punishment it, okay i've heard it say it's even when i was going through religion school in, in as a, a grade schooler uh it, it washes away your original sin being baptized in the catholic church washes away your original sin you don't have it anymore mm -hmm. um which I took it at the time to mean, so that means that I have no desire to sin. So I really have a desire to sin. I'm just yeah, yeah. Um, but um, later on in life, it was just explained to me that no, it just takes away the, the penalty of sin. It takes away the eternal 
mm -hmm. um, penalty of sin. But there's all these still temporal sins mm -hmm. or, or temporal punishments, if Consequ you will, yeah. consequence. Right. And one of the examples that the Catholic Church would use is David when he slept with Bathsheba. Mm -hmm. He was forgiven. He has forgiveness. But he still had to have had to go through that punishment of having yeah. to lose the baby. Um, and uh, so purgatory, to answer your question, I, I know I probably long answer, but um, it is a temper. It is a holding place uh, before you go to heaven to kind of get rid of that temporal punishment for that yeah. uh, for the sin. Okay. What a. So Hail Mary's. I think of Hail Mary, I think of football. You okay. know, three seconds left in the game. You got, well, not Brett Favre. But I don't like Brett Favre. Yeah. You know, so you're watching football Rogers. again is what I'm hearing. No, I'm thinking back in the day. You okay. know, maybe like okay. six years ago before the whole nonsense went off. when Back when you were like me. And... Exactly. When yeah. I was your age, about 10 years ago. <laughs> but when I think of Hail Mary's, you know, 40, 50-yard pass, Peyton Manning touchdown to yeah. whoever he's throwing it to. It doesn't matter. You mm -hmm. know, perfect quarterback. But, uh. But that's not what the Catholic Church sees Hail Marys as. Right. So what is the rosary? What is the Hail Marys? What is this aspect of praying the rosary? Yeah. What's that about? So um, I think this this question made me think back to a conversation that my dad had with my grandmother. Because uh -huh. um, uh, when we converted from uh, Catholicism, there was a, a rift in our family. Oh. Not, not a big rift. Um, because at the end of the day, we understood family is family. We're going to love you one way or another. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I love my family to death. Um, but my grandmother, um, was raised in the Catholic church, very devout. Uh, my dad was having a, a, we'll call it a discussion with her over Thanksgiving. Um, and, uh, you know, he said, you guys pray to saints, you guys pray to Mary. You shouldn't, that's, that's idolatry. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother said, for the last time, we don't pray to Mary. We pray for her to pray for us to pray on our behalf mm. um so so i think you you asked the question i think it was two questions what what is the hail mary and what is the rosary right and i i had honestly never really equated the rosary with mary okay because i thought that the rosary was just a repetitive series of prayers because right. there's like four or five sets of prayers and a bunch of different beads you do one at a time right yes uh -huh. yeah but um the hail mary is so so it goes back to the, the huge emphasis on doctrine right right um by praying to mary they are following christ they are they are actually looking to christ when they pray to mary not just okay. because she's praying on our behalf but because they say okay christ valued his mother so much and um as i was kind of thinking through this i because every mother's day i always like to think of the the, the thought that um when christ was on the cross one of his last thoughts was he turned to the people around to take care of my mother. Yeah. And I thought that was, and that's beautiful. It hurts yeah. you in the, in the, in the, in the heart, you know? Yes. Um, so Catholics see this and see Christ's emphasis on his mother and how much he loved Mary. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they, when they pray to Mary, they, they see themselves as um, following in his footsteps. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but honoring the doctrine of God is Christ is God and God, Christ is man because if you're looking to his mother you're acknowledging that he was part man okay because there was a schism in the church 
that people said, well, he can't, he can't be carnal. He can't be man. He has to be all God right. and, you know, council of Nicaea, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So the logic kind of goes by praying to Mary, you are acknowledging the right doctrine. All right. And, um, you are following Christ, Christ's footsteps, things like that. Um, one of the interesting things I've found about what they believe about Mary is they believe that she never sinned in her life. They oh, believe that okay. she was free of original sin. Um, and that, um, although, um, so they, they, of course, Catholics believe that Jesus died for all okay, to all include right. Mary, but he chose to save her in a special way because he held her in such high regard mm -hmm. because she had to go through an immaculate conception in order for him to come in because, because she's a saint, right? To be a saint, you have to perform at least two miracles. Mm -hmm. An immaculate conception counts as a miracle, I would say. I would argue. You know, so they, they I don't want to say that they see a deity in her, but they see her as above other women. You know, um, blessed are thou among women. Right. Which it's the biblical. angel Gabriel said. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and actually, um, the Hail Mary, mm -hmm. um, that whole prayer comes from Luke chapter one, verse twenty six to fifty six. Mm -hmm. And that's when Gabriel was telling her, You're gonna conceive Blessed are thou among women, blessed with the fruit of your womb. Right. And then she goes and talks to Elizabeth, who conceived John the Baptist. Yep. And that was when I think he left in her womb and all that, all that good stuff. Yeah. And so a Catholic would say that, yeah, the Hail Mary is focusing on Christ technically, and it is in the Bible, except for the last two lines, which they will acknowledge by saying, when it says, um, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. So pray for us sinners. There's nothing in the Bible that says Mary needs to pray for us. Right. But now not the hour of our death was added during the Black Plague because death was so prevalent. Yeah. All right. And and I, and I don't know if that line in the prayer was meant to kind of take the burden off the priests because priests have to go and give last rites here and there right. and, and pray for people and people are dying left and right there's you know only so many oh, priests okay. to go around sort of like a blanket yeah statement. that that's that's not anything i've read that's just kind yeah. of my conclusion mm -hmm. when i think about it, equating the black death to that last line right um but that's just an interesting thing to think about yeah um regarding the rosary mm -hmm. um kind of going back to purgatory as well so mm -hmm. there there are 15 promises in the rosary and all those promises come from mary okay so the history of the rosary is basically a repetitive action to help remember again doctrine there are certain prayers that point to the right doctrine yeah reciting these things kind of helps you get into that mindset i'm believing the right doctrine i'm believing the right doctrine okay. but repetitive actions whether superstitious or not uh, -huh. uh predated christ um yeah the romans had you know repetitive things where they would put a pebble in a in a bowl or whatever or um just to, to recite prayers incantations whatever mm -hmm. um and when the catholic church was evolving um and doing its thing after after the death of christ um monks would recite all 150 psalms i don't know if it's every day okay. or if it was like once a week but they would recite from off memory. memory off memory. Wow. Off, it was 150, 150, 150, 150 yeah. Psalms. And of course they were literate. Um, and believers would look to these monks and say, we want to do that. We want to be able to um, be as um, holy as them and, and, you know, be as close to God as right. them. They couldn't read. Um, 
so what what the monks would do is they would take a pebble and put it and once they psalm one oh, clunk, okay. psalm two clunk. Yeah. it was a repetitive thing to kind of keep them on on target yeah you know um on rhythm if you will and so what the catholic church started to i guess start with with the uh, with the congregations were you can either take a rope tie knots in it and do an our father do a hail mary do this or that uh -huh. and it was kind of a repetitive thing because they couldn't read obviously they couldn't recite the psalms but they could recite these prayers and it was a repetitive thing to keep them on the right doctrine okay. um, but also to kind of keep them uh, close to god and keep their mindset because when you pray the rosary you're supposed to reflect on the four different mysteries and i forget what the four different mysteries are okay. there's like the mystery of christ's love the mystery of christ's grace and, and stuff like that uh -huh. um but there is also um church tradition or history whatever you want to call it of um a saint dominic okay. so when i was talking about heresies before yeah. there was a heresy of the albigenses in southern france and italy um where they denied the the mystery of the incarnation mm -hmm. uh they they didn't believe that christ was man okay. you know so and it, it was a heresy yeah. and um and they also didn't believe in uh, a couple other other things that the church taught but uh, St. Dominic um, has, well, let, let me put it this way. So the Catholic Church decided to persuade. It wasn't a crusade or anything. It wasn't a violent thing. It was to go and, okay. and persuade the Albigenses right. to believe the right stuff. And St. Dominic um, had his had a group um, that, he wasn't the only group, but he would go throughout the countryside of Southern France and Italy and to try to know uh, Christ was man right. and the Trinity is a thing. Um and uh, his his group was called the Dominicans, okay. Dominic yeah. Dominicans, uh -huh. um, and the claim is that Mary came to him in a dream mm -hmm. and said, uh, "You tell them to pray the Rosary, and it'll point them to the right, you know, the right doctrine." Right. And uh, Dominic never made this claim. Okay. But uh, 150 years or 250 years later, there was another uh, Spanish saint or Spanish churchman. Um, who had a dream and said, uh, I saw Mary talking to um, Dominic. Dominic. And uh, so it's it, the, the doctrine of, or not the doctrine, but the practice of the rosary is equated with St. Dominic. Mm -hmm. And Catholics nowadays, if there's a debate either within the Catholic church or between Protestant and Catholic, they'd say, well, there are at least five, six, seven, eight popes who have acknowledged, yes, it's equated with Dominic. And oh, Dominic yeah. popularized the rosary and kind of made it more mainstream. Um huh. So I mentioned the 15, the 15 promises, promises. of Mary. Right. Um, so I read through some of those. And one of them is Mary promises, if you are faithful to the rosary, she will reduce your time in purgatory or she will release you from purgatory. Wow. One, one of the two things. Um, another thing that um, Mary promises is that the rosary will give you, uh, I, wrote, I wrote down the right, right term hmm. signal graces signal do you know graces. what a signal grace is i know what a turn signal is okay do you though i don't know you just hope i just know okay. what they are okay <laughs> a signal grace is how you can know what god's will is okay so basically one of those 15 promises from mary if you pray the rosary that's a way for you to know what god's will is for your life okay um i know we've had discussions about you know how how do you know what god wants for your life how right. do you know if it's him speaking to you or if it's just you saying stuff 
you know, um, and so that was one of the promises of, of Mary and those those 15 promises. So okay. I, I haven't had them memorized, but those are the two that stuck out to me. Interesting. Okay. Well, I, you sort of alluded there or actually talked about it a little bit too and talked about the rosary and, and the promises of Mary, if you will. I know a lot of people, myself included, you know, uh, we'll look at the fact that it seems like the Catholic Church not only venerates Mary, but even worships her and, like you said, prays to her. Uh, what what really is it? What does it mean to the Catholic Church as far as venerating Mary? And how would they argue they don't worship her if they seek her as an intercessor? Well, not well, not just Mary, but praying to the saints in general. OK, yeah. their, their thought process is. These men and women have run the race. Right. They've won. They won the race. They're in heaven. They fought and and they did all the they did all the things right. Okay, that's why they're saints. Mm -hmm. Um, we pray to them because they have kind of a special revelation or a special understanding of what it means to be holy okay. and what it means to be um how to honor God. Right. You know, kind of like the how they felt about Augustine um okay, you know yeah. not quite there but you know close right um so venerating mary is obviously she is somebody to be not not worship but to, to be honored mm -hmm. because she had such she played such a pivotal role in christ's life mm -hmm. and because she um had such a pivotal role in the early church you know right. with, the, with the apostles too um that you know she's a she's an authority you know because yeah. Uh, from a historian, uh, a historian's perspective, uh -huh. she's a primary source. Whenever I look at the at the I like that word at, what, the, at the new at the new what testament. Does it mean? Right. So whenever you uh, study history, if you look at your sources, you have primary sources, secondary sources, tertiary sources. A primary source, if there's a battle, a soldier who fought in that battle, he's a primary source. An eyewitness, huh? An eyewitness. Yeah. If you have somebody who was kind of sitting on the grassy knoll, um, kind of looking at the battle like a journalist or something, that's a secondary source. A tertiary source is somebody who references that journalist or references writings from that mm. um, soldier. Uh, so I always kind of think of, you know, Peter and James as primary sources. And Paul, yeah. I always kind of find it found interesting. He's a secondary source. He yeah. never met Jesus. Outside of he, the Damascus Road. Outside yeah. of the, yeah, he was talking to a donkey. Yeah. And, and um, but he was a rock star in the early church. And right. he did, and I also was thinking about this the other day. We call him a saint, but compared to what he compared to us, we're probably more saints than he is because he has a lot of blood on his hands. Before, I mean, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, before is yeah, yeah. So, but you know, people can change and, and all, all that right. stuff. But I just kind of thought that kind of interesting. And that yeah. I'm not saying that 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 we're perfect. All sin is no, sin. No, yeah. Um, but I'm just trying to um speak to that the word saint. You know, right, kind of from thing, a so. Catholic perspective. Exactly. Not that you're Catholic now, but just Correct. from how they would understand it. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So that it makes sense because, yes, we do know that Mary plays a unique role in the life of Christ and upbringing and stuff like that. And that out of all the people that ever lived in the world, that she was the one woman chosen, you know, to be that instrumental in bringing up the Messiah. Yeah. You know, and so you see from like you mentioned earlier, Elizabeth's uh, declaration and John the Baptist leaping in the womb of understanding who the Messiah was and the blessedness of mm -hmm. Mary. Uh, but as far as being a uh, intercessor, you know, 
you know, like I, I just refer back to the book of Hebrews where mm -hmm. uh, we need not go to any man or priest or anything that Jesus Christ is our high priest. You right. know, we just go. But I think sometimes they overlook passages like that. But uh, similar to I, I not really similar to, but uh, I've heard a lot of talk about indulgences and penance. And there's a big to do a few years back. A couple articles came out, talked about how people can pay pay for or buy out their sins mm -hmm. by doing actions as opposed to like seeking forgiveness, stuff like that. Could you explain what is penance and what are indulgences according to the Catholic Church? What's purpose and is there any merit to them? I, I can't speak to um, penance, but indulgences goes back to what I was talking about earlier about um, with, with sin, you have eternal consequences okay. and temporal consequences right and indulgences kind of help to reduce the temporal um punishment, you know, aspect. punishment punishment aspect of yeah. it um and i didn't i not too too familiar with, with with this concept because what the catholic sources that i was looking at they, they say in in one line no we are not taking away from purgatory we're not taking away from okay you know you fill in the blank but we are um, removing that temporal consequence. We are removing the temporal, mm -hmm. um, you know, punishment of sin, if you will. Um, and yeah, I, I don't have any more details other than that because yeah. it's it's it was a confusing concept to me mm -hmm. growing up, and right. it's I haven't I haven't cracked the code yet. Yeah, cracked the code, unfortunately. From what I remember, there's an aspect of expiation, expiation. Uh -huh. uh, not speciation, right. but expi to expiate, uh, I guess you will, one's sins to remove it by doing certain actions mm -hmm. and, and taking that penalty away. And then from what I recall of penance, going back to the word of penitent is, now you correct me if I'm wrong, but like it, as the Catholics have to go and do their confessions, yeah, they go to a confessional, <laughs> they confess it to a priest, and then the priest will give them what their penance is if you will say yes the hail marys and do this oh yeah yeah is that accurate um that does happen yeah um i don't know if it's accurate but it, it does happen let when you were speaking uh it brought up a, a memory in my mind mm -hmm. um i mentioned that we converted from catholicism after we right. um, um, my grandfather died uh, -huh. uh years after that i visited my grandmother in florida we went to a Catholic mass and uh, she had pre-coordinated with the priest um, and the Catholic mass was dedicated to my grandfather. Okay. He was literally the man of the hour. Okay. By the way, most, most of my family always tells me they, they love Catholicism because the, the mass only lasts one hour. You got what I'm saying, pastor? It only lasts one hour and they're out the buffet after that because Not they got, they got a certain amount of things. That's All right. right. Here I wasn't door. trying to say, I wasn't trying to, you know. Well, if you want an hour, then you just got to cut me out of announcement time. You got to talk to Pastor Ken about that. But okay. we're about a straight to the top. I'm going straight to the top. We're a 75 minute service, if you will. That's okay. pretty good. Yeah. Plus, huh. We start at 10, get out at yeah. 11, 15. We beat everybody to the lunch hour. Right? Touche. Touche. So that's, that's right. But I like that. <laughs> One hour. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Maybe we should start yeah. doing mass here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I got it. Yeah. So. Uh, the way that it was described to me, I think I was 14 or 15 at the time, was uh -huh. um, 
we dedicated this mass to your grandfather to um because we don't know if he's in purgatory we don't know how long he's going to be in purgatory and that's the thing with any any um saint or or um, individual who, who passed away is we don't know uh, how, how long they are in purgatory um all we can do is light candles um uh do indulgences dedicate a mass okay. um and i i guess um dedicating certain numbers of masses mm -hmm. um kind of helps with that um but again that, that's just how it was described to me oh, okay but if you will, will consult any um catholic information source they'll yeah. they'll say no that's not really what we're trying to trying to get at here so um I don't know if it's a difference between different parishes or okay. if if this is just um, Catholic intellectuals at a Catholic university. Because yeah, yeah. I don't know, maybe a university might not be 100 percent on, you know, in sync with what the Catholic Church said. Right. I don't know. Um, all I'm saying is I heard one thing and I read another, um, and uh, but that's my understanding of, um, you know, kind of kind of how that works and and part of my own personal experience and what what was described to me. So sort of like. Uh it could be seen to some people at least maybe not how it is as like a proxy practice for someone that's passed on sort of like how yes. the mormon church teaches proxy baptisms and yeah. proper uh, proxy endowment ceremonies yes for those that have already died and maybe they're in the the telestial heaven they're trying to get to the terrestrial and on to the so they'll do these practices for them yeah uh okay what um Another thing that kind of meshes this question with the previous question you asked uh -huh. is Catholics will look at um, Revelation 5 or 7 okay. and see, so John has this vision of um, past, passed away believers in heaven mm -hmm. and the, the prayers of the living on earth are going up to God, mm -hmm. but it, I think it, the verbiage of the verse is the the passed away believers heard their prayers okay. or or received their prayers or were in the room when the prayers were given to god okay. so um when when a catholic prays to a saint it they don't they're not required to pray to saints yeah. they, i mean they can talk to god at any time okay and yeah. any catholic priest will tell you that mm -hmm. but their justification is uh you or or, or uh, um, logic is uh it's not there's nothing in the bible that says you can't pray to saints um because uh yeah got, got christ is the intercessor and the holy spirit is the intercessor mm -hmm. um but uh we we understand that uh it, and in maccabees is is where they get the doctrine of being able to speak to the dead mm -hmm. and speak to saints and things like that so because it's in maccabees um we have a doctrine where we can pray to saints yeah. at the same time it's not you know you don't have to but you can always talk to god directly mm -hmm. So that's part of the Apocrypha, the Maccabees, yes. part of the Catholic Bible, if you will. So talking about indulgences, penance, purgatory, things like that. And then last rites, you mentioned it before, uh, specifically like during the Black Plague, whatever the case is. Yeah. Now, I've seen the movie The Right by, I think it's Anthony Hopkins. Have you ever seen that movie? I have not. Uh, it's about a Catholic priest, I believe it was, and he has an understudy, and there's a lot of exorcisms, possessions they have to cast out, if you will. And uh, it was an interesting movie I saw many years back, but it really brought my thoughts to what is the Catholic understanding of the last rite? Uh, I've always thought it was like sort of like you have a priest pray over a deceased individual, 
and they get a free pass to hell. It, is that what it is? What is it according to Catholic doctrine? It's not meant to be a free pass, mm -hmm. but in practice, it can be. Yeah. I want to word that, you know, carefully. Right. Uh huh. Um, because they see, so part of, part of the last rites is giving a final Eucharist to so the, the so yeah, a final sacrament. Okay. Um, and actually that's, uh, last rites is one of the sacraments, one of the many sacraments, you know, okay. marriage, um, giving of alms and, and, you know, communion. And so all when you say stuff. communion with a deceased individual, how do they do communion if, no, they're, they're not dead yet. Okay, it's, they're yeah, on the it's like, it's, yeah, it's like uh, the, okay. holy, the holy grail. I'm not dead yet. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> bring out, bring out your dead. <laughs> um, once the person has passed away, there's nothing that can be done because of the big okay. uh, part about that is it's it serves almost the same purpose as uh -huh. the baptism. So you're kind of giving washing away your original sin. Bookends. So you, yeah, bookends, kind of kind of like bookends, and um, it it absolves you of the uh, there's like a several different p's there's the, the punishment of sin the something of sin there's a you know i've i've heard i think pastor ken mentioned it a couple times uh -huh. um but washing away the the eternal punishment of sin mm -hmm. um not that's not necessarily to say that you're not going to spend five hundred thousand years in purgatory yeah. because you know if you did nothing for your entire life and all of a sudden you had the last rites um because a catholic priest will have no issues with giving last rights to an atheist or last rights to, you know, any, anyone who requests it. Um, because it's not a, it's not a, you can only be Catholic thing. Um, because, you know, they, they, they see them as a person who legitimately wants to turn to Christ. Yeah. Um, and, you know, wants to do the right thing, even if it's on, on their deathbed. So would they give the last right over the gospel in a case like that? You know, I don't know. That's a good question. Because, yeah, it just begs the question, if they look at the last rite as having some sort of saving effect for like an atheist or not, whatever the case is. Yeah. So granted, they might have 500,000 years in purgatory, whatever the case is, according to Catholic doctrine. I've always wondered that. Now, you mentioned a word that I want to talk about. Absolve. Absolution. Yes. So does the priest, well, I guess... From my understanding, the Catholic Church does teach that the priest has the authority to absolve or removes a person's sin. Now, from what I understand, Scripture declares, you know, passages like 1 John 1, 9, where if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Mm -hmm. But here it seems like the Catholic Church grants ability to absolve sin from a person's account uh, based upon their teaching on absolution. Right. Is that accurate thinking as far as Catholic doctrine teaches or am I off base? What do you understand about that? They do teach that. And yes, they do absolve sins, although it's kind of I don't want to say. With an you know, absolute that, yes, we absolve sins, but um, that's the that's the, the general thinking and the justification that that they have for it. The logic is. Um, because Christ was man as well as god right he was able to forgive sins here on earth mm -hmm. you know because it was a carnal you know physical thing mm -hmm. um he forgave sins while he was a man therefore mm -hmm. men can forgive sins and a more specific example that they have is matthew 18 
is the story when after Christ was resurrected, he okay. came and he, um, you know, met with the 500 and met with the apostles and showed himself mm-hmm. as a risen Christ. And he talked to the, the disciples. I keep using disciples and apostles. I know they're different things, but uh-huh. bear with yeah. me. Uh-huh. Um, and he said, go, if you forgive their sins, they will be forgiven. And if you do not forgive their sins, some, something along it, right. yeah, uh-huh. something else happened. Um, and they point to that verse, verse 23 of chapter 18 or something, where he says, he told the disciples, if you forgive their sins, they will be forgiven. Right. And peel that logic yes. even further. When I mentioned that he gave certain authorities to the apostles and he gave Peter the keys, Yeah. you know, he, he was delegating himself almost like, like the Pope again, and Joseph and Pharaoh, I'm delegating my authority to you. You are priests on earth, okay. you know, yeah. um, and yeah, I basically said the words, if you forgive their sins, they will be forgiven. Um, and they kind of see that as, you know, kind of, kind of like, like purgatory, pray for my mother. Okay. Well then therefore this and therefore this and therefore that. Right. Yeah. And then, um, so if, if God delegated or Christ delegated his authority to include forgiving sins to the apostles, therefore, yeah. if we yeah. have a direct lineage from Peter, then priests and the Pope can forgive sins that right. way. Interesting. Interesting. I think that's pretty much all the questions other than the fact on one final question that really sums it up. Uh, if there's any Catholics watching this video, what would you want to say to them or just any parting thoughts as far as interviews concerned? Just that. Yeah. I, I have, like I mentioned in the beginning, um, Protestants do, um, speak of uh, Catholics in a, in a mocking manner. Um, but I do understand that it's, it's important to still explain to them what it is that you really believe. But I would also say, listen to them as well. Um, because the pers- th- two different perspectives, yeah. Catholics, you know, understand pretty accurately. So we have been around for 2000 years, right? The, the doctrines that you and I take for granted, you know, the Trinity, you know, the Immaculate Conception, all this other stuff, um, was established by the Catholic Church. The the Protestant argument is going to be, well, we uh, were once all a part of the universal Catholic Church, but sometime between the death of Christ and 1517, Protestant Reformation, right. something changed, you know. And the Protestant argument is they are restoring the Catholic Church back to, or the Christian Church, back to what it was back during the death of Christ. So I think there's misunderstandings on both sides. Just listen to each other. You fought a lot of wars with each other. And I think we've gotten into a better place after the, you know, Treaty of Westphalia, which, you know, we can get into later on. But um, that's that's all I would say is uh, um, there are Protestants who do legitimately want to understand you. They don't want to just mock what you believe. Um, and I understand that Catholics don't feel that that vitriol towards Protestants. Um, but uh, a lot of history, but I think we're in a good place. And uh, yeah. that's all I think I'll say on that. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, I appreciate your time, Brian, and your insight. And uh, yeah, just one thing. Well, I know we talked a lot about absolution, penance, purgatory, things like that. I would just encourage everybody to be the Berean in Acts chapter 17, verse number 
verse number 11, where the Bereans were more noble than those of Thessalonica because they studied those things to see whether they were so uh, based upon what Paul's message was. And I would just encourage everybody to study the scriptures, study the Bible to go ahead and see, OK, what's the teaching on penance, indulgences, Rosemary, Hail Mary, stuff like that, and see what does scripture have to say? Because uh, if you were to look at scripture, you'll come away with the fact of God loved the world that whosoever believeth believeth in him would never perish, but have everlasting life. And the fact on eternal salvation, eternal life is predicated on our belief on the finished work of Christ for our sins. And then once we believe and put our faith in that, we're eternally secure. And so uh, I know you mentioned Abraham's bosom earlier, and really the concept of Abraham's bosom is before the ascension of Christ or the resurrection of Christ uh, after the tomb. Uh, there was a holding place, if you will, for the believers versus the unbelievers. And in the Old Testament, we had a place that really was called a Sheol. And then you had Abraham's bosom, which Sheol, I think, encompassed both. But Abraham's bosom was a separate place where the believers were held, if you will. Okay. And so Luke chapter 15 with the story of the rich man of Lazarus, I really draws that uh, imagery alive as well, because it shows that there's a great gulf between uh, Lazarus and Abraham's bosom, or other words called paradise. You know, today you'll be with me in paradise is what Jesus says, versus the unbelieving part of Sheol. Mm -hmm. But then when Christ rose, and they would argue that he put his blood on the mercy seat and cleansed uh, the heavenly uh, tabernacle, if you will, then that's when heaven became an open spot. And then all those from Abraham's bosom was able to go to heaven. And then now all you have left in Sheol, if you will, the holding place for the unbelievers. And even still the concept of heaven being a temporary place because our end goal as a Christian is not heaven. Our end goal is a new heaven, new earth. God's going to dwell here That's on the earth with man, tabernacle with man. And we'll be here. We see in Revelation 19 when <clears> Jesus Christ comes down uh, that the armies of heaven come. And we come with him back to earth. And so whether it's Abraham's bosom, Sheol, and even heaven itself, they're all temporary locations, because after that, you have earth for the believers and uh, the lake of fire for the unbelievers. And those would be the two destinations, if you will. Mm -hmm. But so that's what I would give to any Catholic watching gift. But uh, I really appreciated your time. This yeah. guy is, if you couldn't tell, he's a historian. Uh, he knows a lot about history. Uh, he's uh, older than me, so uh, I appreciate that aspect of it. And so if you have any questions, comments, critiques, concerns, leave them in the comments below. Otherwise, share this with all the people. And uh, let me know if you like Brian. See if we need to get him back on, interview him again. And uh, just be in prayer for him and his family. That was some stuff going on here uh, soon enough, too. So till next time, thanks for watching. God bless. Thank you.